It feels like a big privilege actually to be standing up here. Um, Art of Arden and myself got together uh, a few weeks ago to talk about today and I said I had a talk in mind, a talk that I gave many years ago but I still felt it was, <coughs> well, relevant. It's, it's about doubt and about my doubts, some of my doubts as I neared towards my ordination. Um, I'm just a bit preamble, I'm setting the situation, the context, I'm just giving the background. Is that alright? Okay. I'm going to stand behind the podium in a moment. I don't really like standing behind podiums, but I've got several pieces of paper, so. Um, I. I was reflecting that I walked through the doors to the Manchester Buddhist Centre 32 years ago. Um, probably one of the, well, Nishpura is in this room, isn't he? Where's Nishpura? He's there. Yes, there's Nishpura. There's probably very few other people who have been around that long in this room. I was only seven when I started going <laughs> to the centre. So you can see I've aged very well, <laughs> um, believe it or not. Okay, uh, so today I wanted to talk about doubt in particular and it's, as I say, um, it's quite traditional. I wrote it while I was at Gukiloka in 1999. So I had my 40th birthday while I was away on my ordination retreat and at the end of the ordination retreat towards the end uh, the last few weeks you well the opportunity is if you wanted to give a talk to have something to say and quite a few things had bubbled up for me during my ordination retreat and it's been a constant companion in some ways of my doubt but faith and doubts so I thought I will put together a talk of some sort that really um, well had a dharmic, con dharmic context, a dharmic background and I came across this, this very useful list in the Pali Canon all about the abandonment of doubt and I thought that was perfect, it was a great way to sort of look at or hang my, some of my experience on and that's what I wanted to talk to you today about and faith is part of that list. This is the weird thing, I've got to wear reading glasses now, which is the way it goes. So, I'm going to read at the beginning from the Pali Canon. It's one of those wordy paragraphs that is almost double Dutch, but, you know, listen carefully and I'll try and do my best to convey. Thus have I heard once the exalted dwelt near Salvati at Jetta Grove in Anottapindika's park, and there he addressed the monks, saying, Monks, Lord, they replied, and the, exalt and the exalted one said, There are, monks, these five checks, hindrances, which overspread the heart, which weaken insight. What five? Sensual desire, monks, is a check, a hindrance, which overspreads the heart, which weakens insight. Ill will, sloth and torpor, flurry and worry. Doubt, monks, is a check, a hindrance, which overspreads the heart, which weakens insight. These monks are the five checks, the hindrances. Monks, suppose in the case of a mountain stream winding here and there, swiftly flowing, taking all along with it a man, taking all along with it, and a man were to open the watercourses into it from both sides, then indeed monks the flow in midstream would be disturbed, swirled about and diverted. Nor would the stream wind here and there, nor flow, nor flow swiftly nor take all along with it. 
Even so, monks, that a monk, without being rid of these five checks, hindrances, which overspread the heart, without strength and weak in insight, shall know his own good or in others. For the good of both or shall realise the excellence of knowledge and insight proper to the Aryans, which goes beyond man's conditioning. That cannot be. Monks, that a monk being rid of these five checks, these hindrances, which overspread the heart, which weaken insight, strong and with insight, shall know his own good, shall know another's good, shall know the good of both, or shall realise the excellence of knowledge and insight proper to Aryans, which goes beyond man's conditions, that surely shall be. Monks, suppose in the case of a mountain stream winding here and there, swifting slowly, swift, swiftly flowing, taking all along with it, a man were to close those watercourses on both sides of it. Then indeed, monks, the flow in midstream would be not disturbed, swirled about or diverted, but the stream would wind here and there, flow swiftly toward forward, taking all along with it. Even so, monks, that a monk rid of these five checks, hindrances, which overspread the heart, which weaken insight, strong and with insight, shall know his own good or another's, or the good of both, or shall realise the excellence on knowledge and insight, proper to Aryans, which goes beyond man's conditioning, that surely shall be. So you do have to just listen quite carefully to the way the words were put down, particularly there from the Pali Canon. So tonight I want to talk about doubt, uh, more specifically sceptical doubt, or vitsikitsa. Doubt has played a big part in my life. We have shared many moments together. And uh, I got ordained when I was... Uh, 40, so 1999, I came along, as I said at the beginning, to the Buddhist Centre about 1982. Um, so, I wasn't one of those hares that zooms into things, as you've probably gathered. I took my time. So firstly, what I want to do is talk about what doubt is, define it, and then I want to look at a traditional list by which we can work at abandoning sceptical doubt. I would then like to share some of my experiences of doubt, which in one, one way or another have contributed to my journey being one of irregular steps. And finally, I would like to sum up a few reflections to do with recognising doubt and how I, how I have worked on it to move it on. So there you go, there's the picture, there's the, the, uh, the context of me um, being invited to get ordained, I'd been involved for several years, and um, yeah, several things several things occurred to me. Several things popped up, and I just wanted to share some of those with you. In my journey, I suppose I was thinking, reflecting a little bit about the Buddha, and of course, the Buddha himself had doubts. Mara probably being one of those, one of those doubts. You know, the armies of Mara coming, and myself moving towards the nation, could I, is it possible, that sort of thing. So what is doubt? The dictionary defines doubt as a feeling of uncertainty, an undecided state of mind, an inclination to disbelieve, a lack of full proof or clear indication. So I see here there are two sorts of doubts. There is reasonable, which is when we don't know something, we are unsure of it, what is the case, and we question it. And that's absolutely fine, isn't it? We, we question it in an intellectual way, thinking things through for ourselves, which is all good and well. But then there is sceptical doubt, vitsikitsa, which is an emotional inability to make up our minds in one way or another. This emotional state always looks for reasons to doubt things, an, all in, an unwillingness to find out, not to sit down and clarify what the situation is. In this way, we don't take the trouble to find out what the truth is, 
because if we did, we might have to change. We keep things vague and unclear. We keep things safe and we don't feel threatened by doing that. So the outcome of this doubt is indecisiveness, which leaves us impotent and we can't make up our minds, so we can't act on it. So Vitikicca is doubt and indecision with regard to the truth in some way or other for each of us, on, on any sort of level really. And that's what I want to sort of share with you this afternoon. So I've put on here the five hindrances which uh, the Buddha's just been talking about, the five checks, uh, just in case you are not familiar with them. So I cannot say that all my experiences are of this kind, but I think the greater majority of them, as I reflected at, uh, at Gukiloka about my years um, getting involved in the Buddhist Centre and what it meant to me, um, yeah, it was a slow, slow burning process. So doubt is one of the five hindrances, and it is also the second fetter. So it pollutes our samatha practice, it pollutes our meditation practice. It is one of the main factors that holds us back from stream entry. Um, stream entrant is somebody who is able to break the first three fetters. I'll touch on those in a moment, exactly what they are. So it's got a lot to answer for. In fact, it is said that one of the main hindrances, it is one of the main hindrances to meditation. Not because it's the most powerful, but because it makes it difficult to deal with the other hindrances effectively. As we heard from the Buddha, sceptical doubt is just one of the hindrances along with this list here. Desire for sense experience, restlessness and anxiety, sloth and torpor, flurry and worry, and hatred. So these five make up our basic human emotional tendencies and according to Paramananda in Change Your Mind, it would be true to say that if we were not in an aware positive state, we are to some degree in the grip of one or more of these five mental attitudes. So I'm pretty much reading this as I wrote it at that time, me, whatever, 16 years ago. Uh, yeah, 16 years ago. So. You know, you could do a part two to this when I was writing, uh, you know, putting this together, really. Anyway, so just that's, yeah, just to remember that's me writing this as I was there and then. So don't have the monopoly on doubt. We all experience it from time to time, but it does seem to be my particular favourite. Doubt is the second fetter is an unwillingness to commit oneself, to hold back for no good reason. Banti talks the about the gravitational pull of the conditioned is at work with inventions. So, here living in samsara, in a conditioned uh, world, the gravitational pull of my habits, you know, the way I go about living my life. And we talk a little bit more, if you want to become, break the three fetters, you move towards, you, you enter the stream, that's why it's called a stream entrance, you enter the stream, and your experience of the unconditioned then becomes more um, available to you begins to pull at you a little bit. But until we've broken the first three fetters. Um, so, we may be interested in the spiritual life, we start looking into it, but we won't commit ourselves. It is because we are afraid, afraid of what changes we may have to bring about to make any spiritual progress. Doubt reinforces old habits and familiar levels of consciousness, and we remain strongly bound by this fetter. Even a stream entrant who has broken the first three fetters, that is, the first fetter is self-view, the second doubt, and the third attachment to rites and rituals as ends in themselves, and has gained complete faith, experiences a subtle doubt. To abolish that completely, one would have to abolish ignorance too. And our spiritual ignorance remains with us right up to vimukti, or freedom, the last but one link on the spiral path. So sceptical doubt, Vitsikitsha, is going to be our travelling companion for some time. So what are the techniques by which we can work with doubt? So here's where I came across this traditional list from the Pali Canon. I'll go through them. We'll be going through them. I'll be going through them one by one. 
So of the six things conducive to the abandonment of doubt, firstly, knowledge of the Buddhist scriptures, doctrine and discipline. Secondly, questioning about them. Thirdly, familiarity with, familiarity with the Vinaya. That is the code of monastic discipline. And for the lay followers, the principles of moral conduct. As you can see, this obviously just does come out of the Pali Canon. Fourthly, firm conviction concerning the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. Fifthly is noble friendship. And finally, sixthly, suitable conversation. So I want to talk about each of these points and briefly see how they are relevant to each of us. Maybe you, know, you will reflect as I talk on some of, these, uh, well, some of these qualities, some of these six things. Um, and also tie in some experiences of doubt throughout my spiritual life. So firstly, knowledge of the Buddhist scriptures. Well, it seems very straightforward in that we need to read about the Buddha. Um, we've spent a big chunk of today, obviously, cont contemplating the Buddha. Um, trying to maybe not uh, pin it down too much, trying to sort of keep an open space, see what emerges. Trying to not be too um, cognitive about it, actually. See what the, see the way he led his life. We have lots that we can read about that. What he achieved, how he managed that from his great realisation, see the many paths which he taught, so that we too can follow in his footsteps and gain liberation. And I'll combine the second one with this. Of course, we are going to have many questions about those teachings, so we can clarify things for ourselves. So you can see that uh, number two of these six things is very much to do with number six which is very much to do with the Sangha. So when we come together as a Sangha, we have this opportunity to speak to one another. We have this opportunity to share. We have this opportunity to, um, to learn and to grow. So how did I start with my Buddhist scriptures, uh, my three jewels? Well, it was with, um, with Mitra study course. It was back in 1987 with Ratnaguna, believe it or not. That was the first time that was the first time I did it. I actually did the Mitra study course twice because I was just been around forever, really. <laughs> they didn't know what to do with me. Um, as I think back now, I see much more clearly how my life was unfolding. I got involved in FWBO, as it was known then, the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, in 1984. It was my best friend, Moksha Priya, who twisted my arm and said, just try it out. Go to the centre and see what it's like. I was not hugely enthusiastic, I must say. But after he'd been badgering me for three months, um, he persuaded me to come along to the Buddhist Centre. So I went to the Buddhist Centre, and it was in Withington in those days. Anyway, I liked the people, but not the Buddhism. Because <laughs> I didn't understand it. It was this weird Eastern... Um, it was the, the mandala of the five Buddhas, and I thought, ooh, what's that? It just didn't, it just didn't make sense. But, as I say, I did like the people. Um, I continued to go along because Mokshapriya was very keen and I was a very loyal friend. I made a few friends and it became a social event for me. But I can't remember questioning why I was going. I can't really think through, well, what is it? I mean, apart from liking the people, what is it? You know, this Buddhism thing. By nature, I'm a sort, I am the sort to seek approval. I like to be liked and I'm very easygoing, so these may have had something to do with the fact I just kept going along. And as I say, I am loyal to my friends. And I don't challenge situations, I certainly didn't, not that I challenge them many these days, but I didn't challenge them much in those days. I just simply I remain quiet and work it out. I think when I don't challenge situations, um, it's because I lack confidence in me. So about that time, 1986, I bought a house, I moved in with my partner Lorraine and I had a good job in a hospital. I liked putting my energies into this lifestyle. The Buddhist Centre was one night a week, it was Monday night, and for those times that I met up with my Buddhist friends. I bought a house with Lorraine and felt a strong commitment to Lorraine and I felt like I had everything I wanted. My, my life seemed to be 
pretty happy. I had most things. But there was this thread of meaning that I seemed to touch on at the Buddhist Center when I was, when I was there. I kept going along, but the thread really was quite thin. I suppose I wanted to remain indecisive. I didn't want to change. Actually, I don't think I wanted to commit myself. And in that way, I had the best of both worlds. So back to the Mitra study. Um, it's what you do when you become a Mitra. You, that's the next thing you do. So I followed this through. I don't think I questioned the fact I became a Mitra, really. I remember becoming a Mitra in 1987 at the Manchester Town Hall. With Suvadra um, as the celebrant or who led the ceremony and um, Steventon and uh, one other person as well. I think the momentum of the positive group and my easy attitude and my intermittent interest in Buddhism did get me to that point in 1987 when I became a Mitra. <coughs> but did I really want to study? I don't think I did. Did I really want to understand what I was involving myself in? I don't think I did either. Lorraine would call me a Monday Buddhist. Because it was the one day a week when I got out my books, my Buddhist books that was, put on my Buddhist head and went to Mitra study. The rest of the week, I forgot completely about it. <laughs> about the centre, I did have Buddhist friends, but uh, you know, you'd meet up once or twice a week. Um, it didn't occur to me to think that I was a Buddhist or a part-time Buddhist. And she was right. Um, so a quote from Bhante. If our deeper and more powerful emotions are tied up with things of a more worldly nature, then our involvement with the Dharma can only be superficial, however sincere we may be. If we are to be truly Buddhist, our involvement with the Dharma must be truly passionate. And I think that's something that does resonate with me, the, this idea of being passionate. Um, I've got more passionate over the years, but I do remember in those days, I kept, I don't know, I just wouldn't commit to things. So I'm building up a picture here of a young man who inhabits two worlds, or that's how it felt. To begin with, I could go along with a reasonably comfortable, to go along reasonably comfortably and happily. But my happiness, after a few years, did begin to wear off there was a sort of dull awareness of this going on. But I kept it vague and I didn't address it. But what I did do was go in search of happiness to fill that hole that was beginning to get known, become, becoming known to me. Um, um, probably been living with Lorraine now for four years, um, thereabouts. Yes, it would be four years. And I looked for happiness somewhere else because things were a little bit, I don't know, Things just weren't clicking at home, you know, my home, living with Lorraine. And I got myself entwined in an affair, which, you know, led to all sorts of regrets, I must say. Um, my spiritual life sort of moved right to the edge of um, my mandala, if you know that term, right to the edge of my thinking, my being. In 1991, I went on a week's training course to Cambridge. I was a medical photographer and... Uh, various training courses have come up, we travel around, I would travel around. But this week in Cambridge became very significant for me. I met a woman who was full of life that I admired and I was very moved by. And because I was in a completely different surroundings, I didn't have any of my usual responsibilities. Um, and it was this, I think, that allowed me just to sort of be in a different space, a very different space. Her liveliness, uh, I just really enjoyed her company and I began to see the wood for the trees. I realised that what I had was not what I wanted, which is a bit of a painful realisation actually. But I didn't know what I wanted. Being free of my normal routine had somehow allowed me to come to a decision if, if only in my mind. I have a bit of a flashback here because I remember a very happy moment when I was at college and uh, I was sitting looking out the window listening to some music, classical music I was and sipping Earl Grey tea. I'd gone to London, I was on a training course, a photography training course, I met uh, Moksha Priya, he was my roommate uh, next door, room, 
and I just felt the world was a fantastic place. I thought, I thought I just the, that uh, I just had freedom to do whatever I wanted. Here I was at college, the world was my oyster. And it was this sense of freedom that I think I'd lost. I'd started to lose um, without really giving it much thought, without really giving it much attention. You know, in my living situation, in my work situation. The realisation of it was painful because it meant to act on it would mean to change everything. I felt guilty towards Lorraine, who'd invested so much of her life in our life, in the house. A big change in my life would mean a big change in hers. And I did feel a strong sense of responsibility in our friendship, sorry, in our relationship and our home situation. So that was 91. It took me two more years to really sort of sit with this. Will it get better? Maybe it will improve. Maybe I'll become clearer about what I want to do. Could I, and then I maybe be able to put my finger definitely on it, what I needed, what I wanted. It never did become crystal clear, I must say. So 93, I suppose painfully, I pushed aside my doubts and indecisiveness and with the support of some good friends, I was able to sort of painfully admit to Lorraine that we had drifted apart. We wanted quite different things. And uh, I think we, we had to go our own way. We had to go our own ways. Here's another one from Banti. Many people experience themselves in a purely passive way, feeling they are victims of circumstances. Sometimes the important thing is to do something, to experience your own energy, experience yourself in action. Otherwise, you don't really feel alive. No real spiritual progress is possible until you experience yourself acting rather than acted upon. So moving on to point number three of the six things, thing number three, fami familiarity with the Vinaya. So I see this as the ten pillars of Buddhism, the ten precepts for, for our tradition, for me. Uh, Bhante again. Going for refuge or commitment to the three jewels is one's lifeblood as a Buddhist. Observance of the precepts represents the circulation of that blood through every fibre of one's being. So, some weeks ago, we each took a vow to undertake to observe the ten precepts as part of our ordination process, from me becoming a mitra to becoming an order member. To train ourselves in these meaningful ideals and bring about total transformation of ourselves and our relationships with others. Now that sounds quite a big, quite a big statement there, as I wrote this in 1999. They have become the whole of our spiritual life, a very practical way by which we can measure change. But I must say that I find change quite a mysterious thing. I have often asked myself, have I changed? I look back 10 years, 10 years of involvement, and I really wonder sometimes if I have changed. Of course, doubt, my own doubts, could be having a bit of a say in this. Ten years ago, I thought I was generous, kind, good to those I met, helpful, didn't swear, was a vegetarian, a nice guy, that sort of thing. And I still feel the same now. So have I been wasting my time? What have, been, what have I been doing to make a difference? So there's a lovely story that Arta Priya, uh, another very dear friend of mine, I was sharing a hut with him uh, during the ordination um, retreat. He had this story that on their ten, on his ten-year reunion, it seemed as if people were still taking, sorry, were still talking about the same issues, dealing with the same problems, going over the same old ground. Why? Artapriya had gone and asked Banti, because in those, very, those early days, Banti led all the ordination retreats. 
So this is me, or this is him paraphrasing slightly, this is what Bhante had to say. We have a lifetime, in fact many lifetimes of working on a particular way, working in a particular way. Habits run very deep and there is a huge momentum behind them. So it's not the work of a day to change our habits. It's not the work maybe even of a lifetime you could say. What we should see happen is that you go round in this spiral. So as if you've got this big base and we're sort of going round in this spiral and slowly, slowly we start rising up this spiral. And because it is a spiral, it actually gets slightly smaller, slightly smaller. These strong habits become more and more subtle until if you get to the top, as we get to the top with our various habits, they change. You have changed enough and these habits don't affect you anymore. So real change can take a long time. Patience is a quality that we need to develop. I think we are so used to getting things quick. We live in a society, a culture, where we can get what we want almost immediately. Just imagine all those lifetimes it has taken for me to get to this point. Habits are so ingrained, being played time and time again. Of course, it's going to take me several years to make real progress. It's a good point to reflect on. Sometimes it's quite easy not to, um, not to sort of bring that into the perspective, into our picture. But looking at it a bit more positively, something that Shantideva said, when shall I find such rare circumstances again? The arising of a Tathagata, the arising of a Buddha, faith, the human state itself, and the capacity to practice such skillful deeds. I have come across the Dharma. I have come across, a come across a great teacher in Bhante, who has made it so accessible for me. And I have come across an order where I can wholeheartedly practice, grow, and even occasionally give talks. Of course I have changed. We need to reflect on this, reflect on this precious moment, how fortunate I am. So fourthly, firm conviction concerning the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. So as a means by which we can overcome doubt. So here we are, we're going to talk about faith, Shraddha in the Three Jewels, but maybe especially faith in the Buddha, the founder of Buddhism. So there are three grounds of faith in the Buddha. There's intuition, there's reason and experience. So firstly, intuition. So all of us at some point in our lives have, have had a feeling, an intuition or an, em or an emotional response. You may just reflect on today, an emotional response. On the floor down there there's lots of emotional responses that I can see. Of something higher, of something greater, of something of meaning, or maybe of ultimate meaning. This intuition may come about for a whole variety of reasons. Celebrating um, a festival day together, of course. It could be because we have some trauma in our life, some suffering has happened, or that the nine-to-five job is just not enough, it just isn't ticking all the boxes anymore. Or that we contemplate the fact, well, this is my time now, I grow old, when am I going to start acting? When am I going to start looking at my life a bit more deeply, a bit more thoroughly? I have two vivid memories of when I was in my early teens. I remember looking at my mum who used to, at that time, watch all those soap operas, night after night. Every single night there was something on TV. And I must say, when I read it, I think, oh no, I wouldn't feel like this now. But at that time I thought, my mum's potential has just been sucked away by the TV. You know, EastEnders has got her. Coronation Street's got her. And I really had this uh, sort of almost abhorrent um, dislike of those soap operas. And no offence to anyone who loves soap operas. It's, you know, people really do love them. But for me at that time, I was just thinking, wow, mum, what about doing something else with your life? And I had this strong feeling of stagnation. It was an image that just came to mind. So I ask at the end of this, please forgive me, Mum, because 
I didn't tell her that, but it was just what I felt at that time. And then when I was 16, I became very interested in anatomy and physiology as I was reading, as I was reading about the central nervous system, I was reading about the brain, funnily enough, when I was 16, as you do. And the fact was that we only used 10% of the brain. And it just struck me. Well, what happens to the rest of it? Where is all that potential? Where is all my potential? We must have tremendous potential if we only use that amount of our brain. So I was wonderstruck by this precious body of mine, this precious mind of mine. And those are just two memories which just came to mind as I was thinking about, well, what, what has sort of made me look uh, at what has more meaning? What's, what's got more depth in life? So moving on to the second of these three, reason. Faith is an emotional counterpart to reason. So the Buddha's teachings are there to look at. His Dharma is ehi pasiko. Ehi is to come, pasiko is to see. So of course, this is something that gets chanted time and time again in the Tiratnavandana. On the ordination retreat, we were chanted every morning. So come and see which implies we don't take the Dharma on blind faith, or because a friend believes in it, or because it's in a holy book. And the third of the three, experience. Finally, after our initial response to something of higher value, ultimate value, we look into this. It may be that we read a book about the Buddha's life. We look through the Pali Canon. We study his teachings. We share some of this with our friends who are interested in Buddhism, interested in a day event, something very simple, but something also could be quite meaningful. And that we want to try it out, we want to understand it, you know, not just with words, not just with intellect, but sort of through the whole of the body. And again from the Tiratanavandana, the Dharma, the Dharma is described as Pachitang Veditabo Vinyuhiti, which means to be understood individually by the wise. So you have to experience it for yourself. No one can do it for you. And, then, and in the light of that experience, develop a faith in the Buddha and what he taught. So the words of the Buddha here, I have shown you the methods that lead to liberation, but you should know that liberation depends upon yourself. Fifthly, noble friendship as a means to abandonment of sceptical doubts. There's so much that probably could be said here. So this is a spiritual community, this is the Sangha. And for me, at this time of writing this, it was more specifically the order, the order that I just joined. It was the order where I was going to share my time my uh, greatest support, the context in which I was going to be much more involved in my life. So the order is a network of spiritual friendships bound together with the common ideal of going for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. A collection of individuals who are striving to become more truly human. How inspiring is that? And how precious is that also? To come across it. Personally, friendship has been very important to me. Mokshapuri and I have been the best of friends for, at this time, 21 years from our college days, right up to the hug he left me. We hugged here as I drove off to uh, stay with Mahashraddha in, in Norwich, and then from there we drove down through, through France and uh, to my ordination retreat. We have been there for one another. We have had our difficulties. At times our friendship has been fierce but we also have a very deep friendship. But at times it's when he is at his most challenging that I find it most difficult to be fully myself also. It's interesting that I was reflecting on this a bit when I read it. I would sometimes doubt his motives and it took us some time to work that out and I know that I sort of seek approval so it can be a little bit mixed up for me. But underneath it all there is this deep long-standing friendship that I still have with Mukshapriya. So Mukshapriya 
we came along together in 1983 pretty much. He was a few months earlier than me. He was ordained in 1985. He was one of those, he knew exactly what he wanted. And it took me 16 years then. It took me 16 years to get ordained. But I kept saying to him, it's not a race. It's not a race. But if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be standing here now. In the last few years, um, he has been a constant support to all my doubts and difficulties, encouraged me to push on <laughs> with little suggestions that, in his very, very wise and crafty way, he'd say, why don't you try living in a community? And then he'd leave me alone for a few months and he'd say, have you thought about that? I'd go, oh yeah, yeah, that community thing. I did try living in a community. I stood on the fence for so long. And then he'd wait a few months and then he'd say, what about joining a right livelihood business? What about joining Clear Vision? And then he'd leave me alone. And a few months later, I'd say, Clear Vision sounds a good idea. I want to work with Buddhists. So I stopped working at the hospital and joined Clear Vision. He's been a very encouraging friend. Both Moksha Priya and Art Priya became my Kalyana Mitras last year and have been shining examples of experienced order members and good friends. And because of it, I've never doubted the Western Buddhist order, the Triratna Buddhist order. And finally, sixthly, and lastly, the suitable conversation. So what does this mean? Well, I suppose it speaks for itself, doesn't it really? Um, that our speech should be truthful, kindly, gracious, helpful and harmonious. How wondrous that sounds. These come, this comes from the Ten Precepts. Where else do you find such high ideals? How a correctly placed word or two dispels doubts and we're clear and we feel clear, inspired and determined to go on. So those are quite brief in some ways and I'm sure much more could be said. But I found the list very interesting and it really helped me to be build up a framework. Okay, so, so these are the six things conducive to the abandonment of sceptical doubts. I will leave the last word to the Buddha in this part and then I'll just sum up at the end. Uh, this is what the Buddha said from a commentary in the Dignia Nikaya. The abandonment of sceptical doubt. There is a strong man who, with his luggage in his hand and well armed, travels through a wilderness in company. If robbers see him, even from afar, they will take flight. Crossing safely the wilderness and reaching a place of safety, he will rejoice in his safe arrival. Similarly, a monk, seeing that sceptical doubt is the cause of great harm and, cultiv and cultivates the six things that are an antidote and gives up doubt, and gives up doubt, just as a strong man arms and in company, taking as little count of the robbers as of the grass on the ground will safely come out of the wilderness to a safe place. Similarly, a monk having crossed the wilderness of evil conduct, will finally reach the state of highest security, the deathless realm of Nirvana. Therefore, the Blessed One compared the abandonment of sceptical doubt to reaching a place of safety. So finally, a few recent experiences and reflections. In the course of the last 12 weeks, I've come to recognize my sceptical doubt as never before. Here are a few of my experiences and how I've worked with them. There's a page from my diary here, uh, which I kept quite a full diary on my ordination retreat. I first realized that I felt unhappy. It was a day or two before my private ordination. I was feeling bored and unhappy actually. And as soon as that feeling arose, I immediately go for a memory that recalls as happy. It may be or it may not be a happy memory, but usually my memory says that uh, it retains all the happy ones and it doesn't bother with the unhappy ones. So this is my first problem. My view is always one of optimism. I mean, you know, that can be a very useful thing and is a very useful thing, but what I would tend to do is I wouldn't allow myself to experience unhappiness. 
Therefore, I never got to the bottom of it, or what, uh, or what is, was making me unhappy. I think if I'm unhappy, I have failed, and if I'm happy, I have succeeded. But today, I have said, this is in my diary, that it's okay to be unhappy. I have, I have been reading uh, something from What is the Dharma, Bhante's book, which inspired me. So I felt confident and courageous enough to sit with and try to understand this unhappiness. So the day before, my, my, before being privately ordained, something I've been on course towards for many years, something you'd think would make me extremely happy. So what's going on? I will become an order member. Ah, do you know what? They have ten rules, not just five. Ah, order members, they don't have girlfriends either. You can't have a girlfriend. And apparently you can't go on holiday as an order member. <laughs> you have to always go on retreat. So, they must do this and that and the other. And that's what was going on. That was what was behind it. There's no more pleasure becoming an order member. So doubt had crept in and started spreading all these malicious rumours. But it's not going to be like that. One is going for refuge from the old Brian as I was, but sort of augmenting what qualities I had and sort of raising it up. It doesn't mean that I have to give up anything. In a sense, it's more like let's see what qualities we move towards. A balance has to be found. I was just having this absolutist view. It was, it was, it's either all or nothing and life isn't like that. So this particular form of doubt made me reconsider what I was doing in my life, attacking me from the point of view of unhappiness, and it has done it so many times. Now I can look for it before it just reaches out for a happy experience and consider, well, what is it? What's going on for me? Get to the bottom of it and allow me to diffuse the doubt. Just a couple more. We need to acknowledge the hindrance of doubt and that it is a hindrance and decide that we, that we are going to do about it. Having this sky-like mind attitude has helped me to recognise doubt and indecision, to give it some space and size it up. And it's interesting, in that situation it helps to diffuse it, or it can help to diffuse it. I reflected that I must work harder to bring together my thinking, to clarify things and what I feel. This way I can be much more behind, emotionally speaking, the decision-making. Another reflection was not to be afraid to make a mistake. My ego wouldn't allow me to make a mistake. It gets in the way, which then affects my confidence, which then raises my doubts. I think these days as I stand here I'm much, much happier about the fact that of course we're going to make little mistakes, but at that time that's how it was for me. Don't be afraid, get involved in it, push aside doubt. Don't give up it, don't give it any space. Have confidence and faith in yourself. Another day from my diary, 15th of July, after I'd been ordained. I felt unhappy this morning, more a sadness and flatness, and I couldn't work it out. Eventually I found doubt lurking in there. I doubted whether I could do enough study to cover myself. I doubted I was up to leading a spiritual life, making effort every day without fail, doing my sardana every day without fail. Actually, I wanted a cosy life from time to time. I even wanted the odd day off. Was any of this possible? This all welled up in the sit before the going for refuge and prostration practice. So I considered I was not on my own. I was surrounded by friends practicing the spiritual life, each with their own concerns and struggles. I reflected on the Buddha and how he did it himself. Um, our hung to the best of all refugees would go as I went down. Bhante did it by himself. Jagdish Kashyap told him to stay and work for the sake of the Dharma. And I have all my spiritual brothers around me going for refuge. So I simply went for refuge to the Sangha to begin with. I began to feel better and more expansive. And as that faith in me grew and grew, I was able to engage in the practice more and more. And this is, of course, one of the traditional methods of dealing with doubt, to simply go for refuge. A reflection of a similar nature, 
I've reflected that I have taken this ordination for the sake of all beings. Shanti Deva calls it the highest human sentiment. If I reflect on this, doing this for those that you love most dearly, you could start with your mum and dad, your best friends. This stimulates faith and your positivity grows and one's doubt subsides. You then reflect on friends in the Sangha and then those not in the Sangha and then all sentient beings. And as, you as your positivity grows more and more, you feel motivated to practice. You're happy to lead that late night puja. Do another talk, lead another course. So just a couple of little things, uh, which I found quotes really helpful. So some mornings I'd wake up and I'd feel a bit flat. Banti, the refuge tree, plenty of quotes in there. So a couple that uh, really stood out for me and inspired me. Aloka said, going for refuge is choosing to face reality and take a certain amount of responsibility for our lives. We go for refuge from lies to truth. One particular thing that Sabuti said helped me with a six element practice and that was just the blue sky of emptiness. Shantideva also, so long as I abide, may I destroy all suffering in the world. And finally, the, the last words uh, from Bhante. So just a final word from Bhante, who has been a constant source of inspiration for me throughout my years. Four basic propositions. Firstly, man can change. I have to reflect that I have changed. Secondly, he can change himself. So I have to believe in myself, develop confidence and faith in the three jewels and push aside doubt. Thirdly, he can help others to change. Here, I can develop clarity and understanding and the skill to communicate this with others. And fourthly, together they can change the world. I believe my Dharma brothers and sisters work harmoniously and always keep in mind the inspiring phrase Sabe Sata Suki Huntu. May all beings be well. Thank you very much.